Hospice care in the United States is largely defined and shaped by health insurers and Medicare. A new nonprofit in Western North Carolina wants to reposition hospice as a communal passage. In the same way that we celebrate birth as a rite of passage, why do we not do that with death? Why aren't we celebrating that as a natural part of life? as something that we can learn from and celebrate and apply to our own lives and the many little deaths along the way. I'm Matt Pikin. Today on The Overlook, we talk to the founders of the Center for Conscious Living and Dying. It's a hospice home on six acres in Swannanoa, set to open this spring. Dr. Aditi Sethi is the founding director. Hannah Fowler is a registered nurse and the center's director of education. We talk about their vision of the fusion of life and death and how through the center, they're hoping to change the end of life dynamic. Matt Pikin here from The Overlook. Just as I interview my guests, I interview my sponsors. Those conversations are what you hear as advertisements on The Overlook. No other media outlet in town gives you that much time for your messages. So your ads don't sound like ads. They sound like advice or points of view that really help listeners. And that's how listeners of The Overlook will come to think of you as helpful members of the community. Become a sponsor of The Overlook. Email me at matt at podavl.com. I spoke with Aditi and Hannah on the grounds of their Swannanoa Center. That's why you might hear some wind here and there during our conversation. I began by asking what they were doing out in the world and what events inspired the genesis of the Center for Conscious Living and Dying. Aditi is the first to speak. I started volunteering for hospice 25 years ago. It was 98. And so I, as a hospice volunteer, my life was so enriched by the experiences I had at the bedside with people who were dying. And fast forward... Um, I went to medical school and did family medicine training here in Asheville and then did an extra year of training in hospice palliative medicine and worked in an inpatient hospice facility for 10 years. And early on, I realized that there were s- some gaps that the medical system really wasn't able to or wasn't focused on addressing. Tell me about the scope of your work. Ah. What, what <laughs> were you doing in your work that opened your eyes to what wasn't happening? So hospice is an interdisciplinary team, and it involves hospice physician, nurse, social worker, chaplain. So it is a beautiful integrated team that supports people who are dying. And my role was very much in the education, medical management of pain and symptoms. And what I found was people were coming to us still terrified of death, unprepared for death, which led to dying processes that were not as peaceful and calm as they could be or supportive. And that can also lead to grief that is not tended to. This is within hospice care that people weren't being prepared. So even though hospice is charged with the final days, the final months of the dying, what did you find that the system wasn't addressing? This, this is, you would think that hospice, by the nature of it, is set up to address the acute needs, including the emotional, psychological, and spiritual mm-hmm of the dying. You're saying you were witnessing that people weren't being prepared. What was not happening within the hospice systems that you felt, wow, this something needs to change? So early on in my career, I realized death is not a medical event. And if we continue to treat death as a medical event, then we wait until the last minute when medicine cannot offer cure to really start looking at death and planning for death and preparing for death. 
So hospice, when caring for the dying, does an incredible job of offering holistic support for the dying and their families. But what I saw was that upstream, when people are well and healthy and living their lives, there's no awareness of death or limited awareness of death. And that's what CCLD is seeking to address, explore, and celebrate. How do you get the living and people who are not on the, at least in their minds, the arc of dying, how do you get them to think of addressing their dying? So there are, there are creative ways of doing it. There, right now there's a movement where there's death over dinner, death over draft, over beer. Let's just have a conversation. Death cafes have popped up using social media, using film, and then experiential opportunities with grief work and grief ceremonies and ritual. Aditi and I are both graduates of the Conscious Dying Institute's doula program, and many of the people who are here who are volunteering are graduates of that program. And in our doula training, we were taught to ask people to imagine hypothetically that you have three months left to live from today. And so that's, that's an invitation, a creative way to invite people to face their own mortality without it being imminently present for them. And so today is what? January 22nd, something, something like 24th. So, so April 24th would be your last day on earth, Matt. And we would ask you to imagine, you know, how do you want to spend that time? What are your priorities? Who do you want there with you? Who don't you want there? Where do you want to be physically? What provides you peace and comfort now? You know, what, how can we offer that to you emotionally? What unfinished business do you have with people? What needs healing and completion in terms of your life's relationships and things left unsaid and forgiveness work not yet completed spiritually? You know, so that's, we were trained to approach those conversations in a more comprehensive and holistic way and in a way that invited these conversations more upstream, like Aditi is speaking to in ways hospice doesn't necessarily get to do because it's so last minute, it's so reactive at the end of the road, if that makes sense. You were learning this exercise of thinking forward three months until your death. Why were you able to and, and encouraged to think of this in an exercise as a doula, but that hospice care in general, from what you're telling, from what I'm assessing out, was not asking these kinds of questions. What is the disconnect between what you were learning and what you were seeing happening out in the world? Well, Aditi may have a very different answer, but I think we feel similarly, similarly that we both come from medical backgrounds, which are typically very siloed. So like Aditi was saying, there is a hospice nurse, hospice doctor, hospice nurse aide, a, a chaplain, um, and a social worker. And so everyone has their own roles, their own lanes, and it's very systematic. So it's from a system, whereas being a doula is a non-medical approach to death and dying. And so it's very holistic. And it's, it's more psycho-spiritual rather than medicalized or institutionalized. You know, th this speaks to the larger, I guess, not just cultural, but it's almost a faith-based disconnect between Western medicine and what I understand of as a more, you're using the term holistic, so I'll use that as well. And you would think that hospice might naturally bridge the two, but your experiences, again, to correct me if I'm wrong here, you were seeing that there wasn't that bridge, that there was a more of a natural leaning in traditional hospice care to Western medicine and that line of thinking. Is that true? Yeah, I would say, you know, hospice started as a grassroots movement. So it's very organic, community-based. And then as, as things changed and it started becoming a Medicare benefit, 
there were more regulations and guidelines, and now they're about 70% for-profit hospices, 30% not-for-profit. And so where funds are allocated has shifted. When I started with the organization I worked for, there was a community outreach piece that was very focused, it was, it was emphasized, but that kind of dwindled as we moved towards more for-profit. And that doesn't mean it won't come back, but it's not very exciting to go to a hospital-based workshop rather than what if we went out into nature and went to a retreat site and actually made it glamorous and more fun, you know? <laughs> so I think there's the energetics of the Western model and a component of making it more appealing, uh, the topic that is very can be very challenging to talk about. So as you started envisioning what this would be, articulate for me the puzzle pieces that you thought were important to put together as you were building what became CCLD. Well, it started about 2014. So I put out a call to friends, artists, massage therapists, medical professionals, just to say, hey, can we get together and have a retreat and start visioning how could aging and dying look different in our culture? Or what emerged from that was this vision of an intergenerational return to village life, essentially, where we have children, elders, and dying all happening in the same community and not so hidden. You know, death is hidden from our view in this culture. Talk about why you felt that was important to have this communal blend in which the dying are part of a larger community that does not include the dying. Well, there's so much to learn from somebody who is near their final breath. And they're really essentially living until that last breath. And so the opportunity for us in our living days to be with somebody in that chapter, including children and youth, offers such an opportunity to look at life and, and see the truth of who we are and really tap into the mystery that is oftentimes ignored or just dismissed. Another reflection that I've had that we've talked about a lot is returning to the wisdom of the cyclical nature of life. So in the same way that we celebrate death and um, celebrate birth, excuse me, as a rite of passage, why do we not do that with death? Why aren't we celebrating that as a natural part of life as something that we can learn from and celebrate and apply to our own lives and the many little deaths along the way? So it's not just this one separate event. It it's a reflection of our, the totality of our lives. How do you appeal to people to think actively of their dying process when so many people don't want to think about it? When my dad was dying of cancer, he hated it, hated every element of what he was facing. I won't go into his story, it's depressing, but he was inconsolable, didn't want to see a rabbi, didn't want to talk to anybody because nobody has any answers. He thought of death as going into the void of nothingness, that he will cease to have any consciousness. And I imagine that's just one person that a lot of people have this fear of dying. How do you, how do you eliminate or at least eclipse the fear of dying into a larger embrace of it? So specifically for your father, I would say fear is absolutely normal. And we're not trying to minimize that fear or dismiss it, right? We are the opportunity with an organization like this is to be with those emotions and to process. What do you do with that fear is the question. And what support is available for him or was available for him to address that fear? Whether it was a rabbi, well, maybe it was a friend, maybe it was um, an experience, a movie, maybe it was um, music, maybe it was just being with it and not, there's nothing to do. There's an acknowledgement that there's nothing to fix. The whole medical system is based on there's something broken and we have to fix it. 
So this approach is sort of being with all the emotions that come up around a terminal diagnosis and everything that follows. And embracing it with love. Mm-hmm. I didn't mean to interrupt. Please but that's keep, the main, keep. that's like what CCLD runs on as an organization is love. So it's not trying to eliminate fear, it's meeting it with love, with a loving embrace as a community. Something that came up when you were speaking to your experience of your father. So what we're finding is that many people who are seeking an alternative way or a return to old ways of being with death are people who've had experiences with their loved ones that were not reflective of how they would want to die. And a lot of elders now that are aging don't want to die alone in a nursing home isolated and alone. And so there, it's sort of time to get creative. And that's kind of what we're experiencing. You hit on something, the word living in your title, which I was really intrigued with. And I want to pull that thread more. How does the living component overlap and blend in with the dying? And how do they feed one another? So I, I, I believe that the fear of death directly impacts how we live our lives. But the conscious living piece of what we're doing is so broad. It could be, there's a greenhouse here. It's growing food. It's returning to the natural ways of being. And once you're in touch with the natural ways of being, death becomes not so terrifying or unnatural. I have to take that on faith. (laughs) I live in the city. I don't live out in the country. (laughs) But continue on your thread with what you're talking about, about how being out in nature informs or affects your process of dying. Somewhere along the way, we get so focused on success, however, that, however we define that, and we get so busy and oftentimes removed from nature. And so that has led to our culture and our um, individualization that we see with elders and isolation and loneliness. And ultimately, death is just sort of something that happens because medicine failed. Well, just to elaborate on Aditi's point of when you face your own mortality, your life changes naturally. Things just shift. And so some of those shifts that we often see are you're more present. If nothing in the future is guaranteed, you're right here, right now. You're present, you're appreciative often of what you have now because you know there's no guarantee of it in the future. And so that's something that we can embody even if we don't know when we're going to die, even if we don't have a terminal illness. So in that way, living with awareness of death informs our living consciously and allows so many other opportunities like stepping into who we've always wanted to be, right? Not waiting in life. So much of our life is I'll do it when, I'll be happy when. And so yeah. it's, it really informs, I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many ways it changes everything, but that's one of them that's, that's changing in this community is we're showing up as mirrors for one another through this lens of if you had one precious life and you do and you don't know when you're going to die how do you want to most live who do you really want to be and let me help you be that person and that's what we're doing is we're walking each other home to death but also in life along the way you might know me for the stories i produced for Asheville's public radio station and i'm thrilled to have you listening to the overlook now i can help tell the story of your business or nonprofit through a podcast a narrative series or ongoing show is a unique way to shape the public's understanding of your work and impact in the community i also help independent podcasters launch or boost their own shows find out more through my production company podcast Asheville, at podavl.com Aditi Sethi begins the second half of our conversation by laying out the cobblestones that led to the model she has developed for the Center for Conscious Living and Dying. Backing up to 2014, we did this beautiful retreat. We met as a group once a month, 
um, explored alternatives to nursing homes and pictured this bigger village where there's some alternatives for nursing homes and um, preschool children and end-of-life options. And that group sort of fizzled out and people ended up doing their own thing. And then fast forward to 2021, I had the honor of, along with other people in our community, taking care of this 36-year-old Jewish man, Ethan Sisser. And he was not able to have the death he wanted in the inpatient hospice in Charlotte that he had, he was in. And we brought him to Asheville and we rallied the community and offered him a death that was more reflective of the life he lived with ritual and celebration and ceremony and music. Was he your first, I guess, litmus test for your approach? I would say he revealed that this approach was worth pursuing. What did working with him and seeing him through to his death what did that inform you of in terms of validating your approach or saying, oh, we hadn't thought about this. This is what we need to do. Well, he was dying during COVID and he started documenting his journey on Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, social media. So he was very vulnerable and open with the world about his death. And he was very humble and also not un un unapologetic. This is me. This is who I am. This is what I'm going through. He'll tell you he had part of his abdomen on his head because he had had a major skull surgery. They removed part of his skull and they put a flap on his skull. So he didn't, he was deformed, if you will, and not ashamed of it at all. So he taught me so much just by his approach to his illness and his condition and his decline. And then when he was dying, he wanted to die in community and film his dying process so that perhaps people could have less fear around death. But during that journey, what I realized is he was almost deprived of the death he wanted, which would have impacted his living relatives because they wouldn't have been able to honor him in the way they wanted to in his final days. And that was because there was no social support for him. His friends were all over the country. There was no community to rally around him. And that's essentially what we did was come together and honor this man's life. So it was so inspiring. Everybody was just jazzed and fueled and inspired. And it was very clear that I, I would want that level of support. I wouldn't want to die alone. And I know the film is coming out in March, I think, right? The, mm -hmm. the documentary is. So what did you learn in that process that, oh, we need to make sure we have this as a core of what CCLD does? Is there anything that came out of that? Yeah, so the, the, I had never really thought about community-supported end-of-life care. And that was a phrase that that's what we did for him. And that's what was so inspiring. And that's what we are ultimately doing here. And that, um, so that came out. That was a big, big one. Secondly, it was just a very clear knowing it's time. People are hungry for this. The amount of people that wanted to support him was just incredible. And people all over the country world, perhaps, were watching him as his journey on social media. And there was just a, a yearning and a hunger for this. And so it was the timing. It was very clear it's time mm. to do it now. I wasn't there for the experience of caring for Ethan, but everyone describes it as them being his extended family. And that's so much about what this return to this work is, is that anyone can do this. You don't have to be a doctor. You don't have to be a nurse because death isn't a medical event. It's a part of life. And so that was one thing that I think everyone experienced. And they received so much of so much meaning from caring for Ethan from what I heard. Mm. Like it was just as enriching for those who cared for him as it was for Ethan to receive their care. So that idea of that reciprocity and how much meaning we get from service at the bedside. And because it is, you're looking at your own mortality. It, it's so meaningful. So once Ethan died, I made a decision to leave my job and put my notice in, three-month notice. And I basically surrendered to whatever was mine to do. And it led me on this journey of exploration and 
connection and networking and kind of allowing a kind of a vision to take form. And it takes time. And it wasn't, there was no forcing, no linear approach, no methodical way of doing it. It was just very much allowing and being in the flow. And that's not a new age term, I've realized. This is a real thing. Like, it's, it's, it's real. <laughs> you know, if you surrender and just trust and allow, magic can happen. And this is, that's what you feel here when you come to this. This is a six-acre property in the Swannanoa Valley near Warren Wilson College um, that I describe as a, so close to Asheville but worlds away. And even how I, how I came to find this land was through synchronicity and connection and just listening and I showed up here and I was just blown away. How many residents can you have here at any given time or do you have here at any given so time? So we are brand new. We just grounded here in August 2022 and so things have moved quickly. We will have up to three residents at a time and it's we're a family care home and we're, we're exempt from licensure because we're not going to charge for services. So it's free to those who are dying. How do you do that? Through generosity of donors, which has been a huge reason we're even sitting here today and we will have some educational offerings and probably do an end-of-life doula training with some apprenticeship opportunities for people around the country to come. We use existing hospice teams, the hospice organizations, they will come into the home and do same, offer the same care they would in a residence. Oh. So we're actually collaborating with hospice. We're not you know. Because we're practicing as non-medical, we're just acting as if we're his family. They're family members, right? So hospice is still coming in as they would to care for anyone's family members to address the medical, any medical needs, to refill medications, to, you know, take a pulse on how things are going. That's interesting. So there's nobody here who's technically like, I am the medical person right. on staff. She's a doctor and she's not acting with her medical license here. I'm no. a nurse and I'm not practicing. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> Why are you doing it that way? Less complicated, um, liability-wise, legally. And it's really, that's what we're, yeah. we're wanting to empower communities to take care of one another, independent of having a degree or licensure. It's the remembrance that anyone can do this work. Like, mm -hmm. just like the villagers used to take care of one another. You know, you didn't need a, a special license degree. to do that. I would think that would take incredible discipline on both of your parts, <laughs> because you have a lot of knowledge that you bring to this. And you're really... Uh, maybe relinquishing is too strong of a word, but you're abdicating that realm of it to others Absolutely. so that you can focus on the community so that's elements of so it. much of what we're doing here with this resident. We're doing there, we're, this is the unfolding and unfurling of our train the trainer program. So everyone, we have a small pool of volunteers who are going to be sort of the way showers and the modelers of what the culture is so that when we open in May, we have this team of people ready to train new volunteers who are coming on board and what it, a lot of these people, these volunteers, are practice therapists, are practice nurses, or doctors, or nurse practitioners. And so we're having to uncondition, like decondition, and unlearn and rewire our brains together to create this counterculture, which is purely based in love, love-based approach to care, loving communication with one another, loving communication to the resident above all else, above the systems and the checklists and all the stuff you think you need, that we were trained to need, we're throwing that away, <laughs> not throwing it away, we have some of it, but it's secondary to how we show up for one another emotionally and energetically. What if you're not a spiritual person, <laughs> mm -hmm. per se? Like, you know, I was, I was raised Jewish, I was bar mitzvah, and I've never been back to a synagogue since. I, do, I am not a spiritual person, I am not woo yeah. in any Asheville sense. Yeah. Is that matter? 
No, not at all. Because well, we're just meeting people where they are. Well, there's a couple of ways to look at this. One is that we don't force this on anyone. So if you want to come, it's because you have some level of interest, right? Yeah. So we're meeting people where they are. And then those we care for, like if you were one of our residents, we don't force anything on you. So it's all about meeting you where you are, looking at your unique interests and desires, hopes, wishes as a person. And I would speak to your, you know, people who are not woo, have no interest in this. If we ever do a death over draft, mm. I invite you to come have a beer and let's just sit with the conversation and talk like we're doing today. It's sort of curious. I'd be curious about your experience with your dad, for example, and what came up for you and reflections. And, and we can just reflect. Is yeah. that what you're calling it? Death over draft? So that, that exists. So that already <laughs> okay. exists. It's taken. Okay. But, but we, that's the kind of like, if, even if you're not ready to dive into a two-day yeah. retreat with us. Yeah. Come and just hang out with it's us. An it's, invita- so much fun. it's an invitation. <laughs> We're not asking people to drink the Kool-Aid. We're just yeah. saying, look at what can be so. And that's what the film will do as well. Because not everyone will want to die like Ethan did, you know? Yeah. But it's it's a way to look at your own mortality, your own stuff, and say, hmm, there might be something here, a possibility through this invitation. Good thing I have my trusty note And good thing I have my dear own. I want to thank my guests today, Aditi Sethi and Hannah Fowler of the Center for Conscious Living and Dying. You can learn more about their work at ccld.community. Our theme song is Maker Song, which comes courtesy of the Asheville band The Resonant Rogues. Find out more about them at theresonantrogues.com. The Overlook is a production of Podcast Asheville. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts, follow The Overlook, and talk back to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Sign up for our weekly newsletter and please, please, please share our show out to everyone in your circle who cares about Asheville. I'm Matt Pikin and I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook.